we are working our way through a series entitled The Supremacy of Christ, that Jesus Christ is supreme over all things, not just some things, not just sacred things, not just Sunday morning things, but all things. And one of the things that I think we face in modern Christianity that might not be anything new, but we certainly face it today, is the idea of the false dichotomy. Do you know what's meant by that, a false dichotomy? That's where we feel like we are forced to choose between two things that aren't necessarily separate. We shouldn't think of them that way. And I think one of the great false dichotomies that we face today in modern Christianity is that that false dichotomy of the sacred and the secular. The idea that there is this separation between sacred and holy things, Jesus things, Christian things, and then this secular world out there. So another way to think about that is, well, there's the life that we live on Sundays, and then there's the life that we live the other six days of the week. As Christians, yes, we should give Sunday to Jesus, but the other six days, well, that's kind of up for debate. Or even just our thinking about where Jesus is and what he cares about. Well, he cares about Sunday morning, but I don't know that he cares about my work. Last week, uh, Matt Frey, one of our other pastors, introduced a quote uh, that is one of my favorite quotes from a man named Abraham Kuyper. Uh, Kuyper is a fascinating study uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, one is because he was a theologian who was very creative and revolutionary the way that he thought. But the other reason is he really lived out his theology to the point of being the prime minister of the Netherlands. He was Dutch prime minister. That's pretty amazing. And one of the things he said was this, and I'm going to read it again. This is a, a quote uh, from Abraham Kuyper uh, that Matt introduced to us last week. He said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Okay, it's early. <laughs> I'm waking up too, so let me read it one more time. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. In other words, there's not a square inch in all of creation and everything that we experience as human beings that does not belong to the supremacy of Christ. And so for the next two weeks, and really this whole series, that's what we're looking at. But in particular, the next two weeks, we're going to look at this false dichotomy of the sacred and the secular. In particular, this week, we're going to look at the supremacy of Christ over the church, that which is sacred. But as we'll see this morning, the church is much, much more than an event we go to on Sunday mornings. And it's the people of God lived out seven days a week. Next week, we'll see how Jesus is not just su supreme and reigning and ruling over the church, but how the supremacy of Christ is over our vocation, over our work, the thing that we do more than anything else this side of heaven, the thing that dominates our education, the thing that dominates our time. For most of us, it's the thing that dominates our thought life and our anxiety, the supremacy of Christ over vocation. That's next week. But for this week, what does it mean to think about the supremacy of Christ over the church? So I want you to look at your sheet real quick. We're going to be in the book of Colossians. Matt was, we were in the book of Colossians last week, 
as Matt taught us about creation, we're going to pick up in the exact same spot. Colossians chapter 1. Let me read these through passages and then I'll pray. Paul writes, Colossians 1 verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Colossians 2 verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily." And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Colossians 2, verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Let me pray. Father, be with us this morning as we open your word. We thank you for the gift that the letter to the Colossians is to your church and to us this morning. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what it means to be a part of your church, of your people, and how to see you as the head, every source of life for us in Jesus. We ask this in his strong name. Amen. Well, some of you know that this last summer, I was on sabbatical. Every five years, our pastors are not just encouraged, uh, we are graciously um, pushed into sabbatical, and that's uh, really a gift to us. The idea is that sabbaticals should come not because of burnout, but in order to prevent burnout, that we could really rest, and the Lord was so gracious to me and my family as we were able to rest this summer in some amazing ways. Um, My kids are seven, five, and two, so you can imagine just being able to have school off, and just about every afternoon I would study in the mornings, and every afternoon just being able to play with them was, was such a gift. But other than rest, uh, part of our sabbatical is study, and the topic that the Lord led me to was the idea of how churches grow through conversion. Okay, what does that mean? Well, here in a place like Dallas, Texas, buckle the Bible belt, we still have the luxury where a lot of times churches can grow by Christians coming from other churches. But as you go further, say, to the coasts of America, and especially over to the UK, churches don't have that luxury anymore. They don't have a choice. You, you can't just grow by taking Christians from other churches. No, the only way that you can possibly grow is by people who were not Christian becoming Christian. And I would argue that that is real growth. That is true growth, and it's the growth that God commands us in Scripture. And so to figure out how churches should grow rightly, I decided to talk to some Brits. I wanted to hear their experience. What was it like for them in the UK, a a place where Christianity was dominant? And yet today, if you go to a church or a cathedral in Great Britain, it's become a museum, and that's not a metaphor. Literally, it's become a museum. And people go to see it because of its architecture, but on Sunday mornings, it is empty because the church has died. It's not dying, it has died. And so as I did some research talking to pastors in Great Britain, I came across the work of a sociologist named Grace Davy. 
And the story that she tells about how the church in Great Britain has collapsed has been revolutionary because it has contradicted most popular thought. The narrative that you often think of when you think of the collapse of the church in Great Britain and perhaps even what we're seeing today in the U.S. is that people are becoming atheists. In a place that was once dominated by Christian thought, people are now rejecting that. They're rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting the faith. And they're becoming atheists. They're becoming secular. And there is some truth to that, as there is some truth to that here in the U.S. today. But her study found something different. This is what she found. She found that, quote, unusually low levels of active religiousness live alongside of, quote, relatively high levels of nominal belief. Or to put this in convenient shorthand, Europe believes, but it does not belong. Okay? In other words, what she found in her study is that there was an increasingly low level of belonging to church alongside an increasingly high level of nominal belief. And so in her words, Europe, they believe, they just don't belong. We see a similar pattern here in the U.S. Now, you can make what you want about statistics. (laughs) You know, um, they say that, you know, 95% of statistics are made up. (laughs) Made that one up. Um, you know, you can use statistics to support your point however you want. And so it's, it's kind of hard to, to really know. But if you look at the United States of America, we're not really that different. That what we see in America is there is still a majority of Americans say, if I'm going to have to check a box, I'm going to check the Christian box, right? If you're going to send me some census data and I, and I need to pick one, I'm going to pick Christian. Majority. Americans still say they're Christian, and yet we are seeing this landslide of participation in the local church. Just like Europe, there is nominal belief in America, nominal belief, and yet we don't belong. So what we are witnessing is not a crisis of faith necessarily. It's a crisis of understanding what is the church. What is the church? Some of you guys know some of my story. Um, I came to Christ really at the end of high school, but I still didn't come to the church. In other words, I came to Christ. Christ got a hold of my arrogant heart, but as I went to college, I still had a problem with the church. I I didn't like it. I thought it was stuffy and um, hypocritical. I, I still went. But a lot of the reason I went is because I was arrogant enough to want to change it. And I'll tell you this. I mean, this is true. I'm a pastor today because God used my arrogance. When I felt called to the ministry in college, it was because I did not like church and I wanted to change it. How arrogant is that? And it wasn't until I graduated from college that God really got a hold of my heart. And he helped me to realize something. If you're going to badmouth a bride, you have to be careful who the husband is. The church is the bride of Christ. 
And this morning, if you're like me or you're like all of those people who struggle to know the value of church, the place that church holds in our lives as Christians, I think we all have to begin to recognize that the church is deeply connected to the heart of Jesus. Jesus came and died on the cross for his church. And this morning, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, that necessarily means that you are part of the church, capital C. You are enjoined to Jesus because Jesus is the head of his church. And so very quickly this morning, I want to look at that idea. What does it mean that Jesus Christ is head of the church? And we're going to look at this really in three ways. At least there's three different ways that we can think of Christ's headship over the church. The first way I want to think about it is that Christ is central to the church. Okay? He is the center of the church. How is Jesus the head? He is at the center. I want you to look at verse 18. Paul says he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, what does preeminent mean? It means uh, he might be first, literally like first place, that he might be everything. He might be the most important thing. Another way to think about it, that he might be the central thing. Jesus is central to the church. And you say, well, shouldn't that be obvious to us? Yeah, probably, but it, it, it isn't always. What does it look like for Jesus to be central to the church? Well, the first way that we have to think about that is we have to recognize that as Americans, we are ruggedly individualistic. What do I mean by that? We are a pull-your-up-by-your-bootstraps kind of people. We know how to get things done. And we pride ourselves in that. And particularly as men, we don't want help from anybody, do we? And we say, look, I, I'm going to own this. Whatever thing in front of me, whatever problem there is to solve, whatever issue I am facing, our natural first inclination is not to ask for help, but it's try to do it ourselves until we beat it into the ground. And then we're forced to ask someone for help, usually when it's too late and now it's worse, right? Am I wrong? That is just how we're wired. And now, so you think about the church, the idea of being connected to other people who we're going to be accountable to, who are going to have some say into the way that we live. There's no wonder that the idea of church is hard for us, particularly as men. We are individualistic. But we're not just individualistic, we're also consumeristic. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, we live in a consumer-driven society, and we know what it means to consume, and we know what it means to have something that we have worked for or paid for, and we expect some kind of result, a good and a service. I would argue today in our culture, for many of us, church has become a consumer commodity, a thing that we consume. We have choices of where we go to church, particularly in a place like Dallas. And so when there is choice, well, we think we are deserving. 
And when we pick a particular church, we want that church to deliver. We want it to deliver on its goods and services. And so typically when you think of looking at a church, we're thinking, well, do I like the teacher on Tuesday mornings? Right? Do I like the pastor and how he preaches? Do I like the particular music? What these people are like? We typically look at it so consumeristically. But the Bible looks at the church not as an event that we go to, certainly not as goods and services for us to consume, not this thing that exists on a Sunday morning that we interact with for just a few hours. No, the church is a people, not a place, but the church is a people, a people who've been united to Jesus Christ. Uh, You've heard us on Tuesday mornings teach about what it means to be in Christ, a phrase that Paul uses over 160 times in the New Testament. To be Christian is to be in Christ, to be united to him. United in his death when Jesus died, If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it means you died. His punishment has been made for you in your place because you've been united to Jesus through faith. When Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, if you believe in Jesus Christ, that means you rose. Because you are united to Jesus through faith, that means his victory is your victory. What that means for us as the people of God, as the church, is that if we are all united to Jesus, the same one Jesus, that necessarily means we're united to one another. Have you ever thought about that? Paul says that Christ dwells in you as a Christian. There's just one Christ. That means that the same Jesus who dwells in you, if you're a Christian this morning, dwells in me. That connects us. To be united to Jesus, to be in Christ, means that we are united to one another. And so we are a people, a people united to Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. He said, Christianity means community through Jesus and in Jesus. That is what the church is all about, a community that is centered on Jesus Christ. The problem for us is we typically find ourselves centering on lots of other things. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter. He said that Jesus is the cornerstone. Now, I know a lot of you guys are in architecture or you are in the construction industry or you're home builders, or at least I know you live in a house, so you understand what it means to have a foundation. And when a foundation begins to crack and crumble, the whole place goes down, does it not? So often we center ourselves on other things. We make foundations on other things other than Jesus. And as churches, sometimes we are tempted even to make a cornerstone, the thing that our church is about other than Jesus. And this is hard for us because it's not just bad things. We do it with good things. Things like theology. Is theology bad? No. Theology is good. I would argue every one of you is a theologian. Did you know that? The question is, what kind of theologian are you? Are you a good one or a bad one? An atheist is a theologian. He's got ideas about God. No, theology is good. But when we make our particular theology the cornerstone, 
we're not willing to constantly hold what we believe about the Scriptures next to the Scriptures themselves, then we begin to kind of get just a little bit off course. And we begin to listen to our own thinking rather than the teaching of the Scriptures. Worship. One of the chief things that the people of God as a church do is we worship, not just on Sunday mornings corporately, but throughout the week. But just now, as I said, worship, what did you think of? Did you think of a posture of your heart? Did you think of what it means to spiritually, in your heart and mind, bow down before God as your Savior, as your King? Or when I said worship, did you think of music and a particular style of music? You see, at times, churches can put a style of music as the cornerstone. When a church puts a style of music as its cornerstone, what happens to that church? They begin to fight over styles of music. And perhaps some of you have even been through a church split that literally split apart. Imagine that, but you can see how it happens. Where God's people can no longer be together because they have a different taste of music. Do you think the underground church in China has ever split over music style? No. Again, because so often we approach it consumeristically. I could go on and on and on. I know you could too. Jesus Christ is preeminent. He is central to the church. Why? Because we are united to him. Because the church is not a people. It's not an event. It's not a thing we go to. Right? The church is a people, not a place. A people who have been united to Jesus. A community in whom Christ is the center. The second way that Jesus is the head. First way, he's the center of the church. Second way, he's the authority of the church. Jesus is the authority of church. I want you to look at that middle passage on your sheet. Colossians 2, verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. What's fascinating is that this was written a really long time ago, give or take 2,000 years, and yet, how applicable is this to us today? Paul's encouraging the people in the Colossian church, he's saying, look, don't be duped. All of this human tradition and philosophy is infiltrating the church. It's changing how you think about being the church. Don't let it do that because you're listening to human tradition rather than to Christ. You have allowed human philosophy and thought to become your authority. And brothers, I would say we suffer with the same temptation every single day. Now, there are ways that that is obvious to us, and perhaps we feel that, We feel what it looks like to have the pressure of a contrary philosophy and way of living in our culture to the way that we as Christians want to live. We feel that, and we can identify that. But I would argue that it has seeped into the church as well, that the empty tradition and philosophy of man is not just out there, but it has seeped into the walls of the church. Well, how has it done that? Some of you may be familiar with the idea of prosperity theology, the prosperity gospel. Have you heard of that before? 
prosperity gospel, just think about the words, basically teaches that if you're a Christian, life's going to be good for you, right? That if you will give your life to Jesus, well, Jesus is going to give life to you. And that life is not just eternal life. No, it is the good life. Prosperity, wealth, and health, and every happiness. And so in places that are particularly poor, all over the world, we see the prosperity gospel flourish. The problem with it is it's a lie. It's a lie. Because not only is it a lie because it's not true to our experience, it is contrary to the actual gospel. Jesus came not to give you the good life, not to make you wealthy and healthy. No, Jesus came to give you life, (laughs) real life, the abundant life that is found in Jesus. He came to give you eternal life. So in a place like this, Park City's Presbyterian Church, we're Presbyterians, we would never think that the prosperity gospel is here. But how often have you had a friend, or perhaps even yourself, go through something hard, and you thought, man, what's that about? I mean, they're, they're a good Christian. They're faithful. They've done everything that everyone's ever asked them to do, and yet... This is happening to them. Or maybe it's happened to you. Maybe you've lost your job. And you're looking back on the last five years of your walk with Jesus, and you're thinking, God, what gives? I've done everything you asked me to do. Why would you do this to me? Prosperity theology seeping in. It's an understandable reaction But you see, it assumes that if we are good Christians, life's going to work out well for us. But if you know anything about the Bible, we see much more faithful men and women who have gone through a lot worse. And probably the best example is Jesus himself. The disciples watching Jesus, their great teacher, their rabbi, go to the cross. And what did they think? God, what gives? What are you doing? How would you let our rabbi, our teacher, be crucified? And yet God used the most horrendous thing that the world has ever known in order to bring salvation to you and me. The idea of authority is the only way that we can see the truth in the midst of the confusion. So Paul says, don't be captive by human understanding, by philosophy and empty deceit. But no, verse 9, he says, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. How is Jesus the head of the church? Not just that he is central to the church, but he is the church's authority. How? How is Jesus right now, right here, reigning and ruling, bringing his authority to us as the people of God. This is how. He has given us his word as our only rule of faith and practice. This is his authority over us. 
And so the more that we listen to the philosophy and empty tradition around us rather than the Word of God, the more that we place our trust in it rather than this, the more that we allow it to seep into us rather than we soak in this, we are now pledging our allegiance somewhere else. This is why the Reformation was built on the gift of the Bible, translating the scriptures into the common language so that we as the church, the people of God, could understand it for ourselves without somebody like me telling you what it says. This is a gift. And it's a gift that is the very authority of Jesus to reorient you back to what is true, what is right, what is good. The gospel itself, that Jesus Christ came, yes, to give you life, but that life is in his son. And that life is found, yes, an eternal life, but it's found in us growing as his people, as the church. So last thing before I send you to your tables. Last way that Jesus is the head of the church. It may be a way that you haven't thought about before when you think about headship. It's there on your sheet, Colossians 2, verse 18. Paul says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. The third way that I want you to think about Jesus as head of the church, Jesus is the builder of the church. The church grows in and through Jesus Christ. So Paul says that Jesus is the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together, verse 19. I want you to think about a body. Christ is the head, the church is the body. It's one of the great metaphors of the Bible for the church. Now think about a human body. This is not, you don't have to be a, a, a medical scientist to recognize that a body cannot survive without a head. Are we all on the same page? <laughs> you take the human head off the body and the body no longer survives. This is the image, the metaphor that Paul is using. It's saying, look, there's a way to think about headship and that Christ is central. There's a way to think about headship and to think about Christ is authoritative. But there's also a way to think about headship and that Christ is the source of life. He is what nourishes the church, what grows the church, what builds the church. Without the head, the human body cannot grow. It cannot function. It cannot survive. In the same way... Without Jesus, the church cannot grow. And again, you say, well, shouldn't that be obvious to us? Well, it isn't always. Because you and I as people are adept at trying to live out Christianity without Jesus. I know it sounds crazy, and it kind of is. B.B. Warfield, back in the 20s, called this Christless Christianity. That there is a way that we can try to do all of the right Christian things, repeat the right Christian words and phrases, do the right Christian actions, and call that Christianity. 
But all that really is is Phariseeism. It's just self-righteousness. There is a way that we think Christianity can exist, sometimes even without Jesus. Jesus, though, is the source of life of the church. He is the head, and that he is the builder of the church. So later in Colossians 2, we see this idea growing and growing and growing, and the idea that the church is sustained. Look at the very end of verse 19. It says that the church grows with a growth that is from God. How does a church grow? What do we mean by a church growing? Well, first and foremost, we're talking about, again, a people, not a building, not an organization. So to ask that question, when Paul says that the church grows with a growth from God, he's talking about us as people. And so Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Right? You cannot grow apart from me. Right? In Jesus, there is life. He is where we are nourished. But another way to think about it is this. I want you to think about those stats again. I want you to think about your experience and what you're looking at. I want you to think about, perhaps for some of you, it's your own children who are now grown, who've left the church. For others of you, maybe it's friends. Maybe it's coworkers. People who you once assumed were faithful Christians who now are no longer part of the church. Or perhaps for some of you this morning, it's you. Maybe some of, some of you have not sat in foot in a church, at least on a Sunday morning for worship in a long time. Or perhaps some of you, church is kind of a part of your life, but it's not central to your life. I want you to hear the words of Jesus spoken to the apostle Peter. As Peter struggled to understand why God would allow Jesus to go to the cross as he professed that Jesus is the Christ and yet barely understood what that meant. This is what Jesus said to Peter. He said, Peter, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus is the builder. He is the sustainer. He is the one who grows the church. And then notice what he says next. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So look, whatever stats that we read about, whatever happens in Great Britain, whatever happens here in the U.S., whatever even happens here in Dallas, Texas, to the church, at least through our eyes, Jesus has promised, I am building my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. No stat can ever get in the way of that. No amount of people who are quote-unquote leaving the church, fear not. Jesus is the head of the church, and he is building his church, growing his church, flourishing his church until he comes again. Let me pray for you and send you to your tables. God, we pray that as we think about church and its place for us as Christians and more importantly, your place in the church as our head, as our authority, as the one who's preeminent and as the source of life. 
We pray this morning that we would find life in your son, Jesus. We pray that we would recognize that that life is for the church. And so we as people who claim to be Christians, help us to see that the place, the people that we belong to is the people of God. As individualistic or as consumeristic as we might be, Lord, we pray that you would give us an appetite for community. Help us recognize our need for one another. And help us recognize our dependent need on you as the source and giver of all life, the sustainer and builder of our life in Jesus, the one who's called us to himself and the one who's called us to one another. We thank you for the gift of the church. Give us a greater vision for it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.